All right, so last week we introduced the book of Jeremiah, and we talked about how it's really a book about two things. It's about a man and his message, and how the book of Jeremiah talks about this man and his feelings and his concerns and his sorrows uh, more than perhaps any other book uh, in, among the prophets, both major and minor prophets. And it's also a book about the message, uh, the message that he spoke, dichotomy throughout the book of, of Jeremiah being very certain and very direct and very bold publicly about the message that he is proclaiming and preaching from God. Uh, he is very clear and certain and convicted about those things, and that comes across in his, in his preaching. But at the same time, he is a man of great emotion. Um, he is a man of, of great intellect. I think we can take that from this book. Um, he is a man who, who lives that conviction while at the same time, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't bury the things that he feels. He doesn't bury the things that he thinks and, and talks with God about things, talks with God about his struggles, talks with God about his doubts. Uh, and so we see in this book, not just a very clear message from God of judgment that is coming upon the people uh, because of their unfaithfulness, and a secondary message of hope that God is going to bring a remnant back that's ultimately looking forward to what we're going to have in the new covenant. We're going to talk about that more this morning. Uh, we see those very clear messages, but we also get a picture of what living a godly life and fulfilling what God has prepared for you, His will, what that looks like in the midst of very difficult circumstances. If Job is examining that idea of suffering and sorrow and, and living righteous in the midst of great suffering, Jeremiah is examining that same concept, except the suffering in this case is very much persecution for righteousness' sake. And what he's having to go through because of who he is, because of what he stands for, and because of what God has called him to do. Uh, Everybody experiences the first kind of sorrow and suffering, the Job kind. Everybody, everybody goes through periods of loss, uh, whether that's physical loss or familial loss. Everybody goes through periods of, of issues with our health. That's something that everybody, everybody struggles with. Jeremiah is dealing with struggles that are more directly related to those of us who are followers of God. And the struggles that we go through in striving to serve him. So it's the man and the message. And last week we looked at the man first for a little while and then talked about the message. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to flip that. We're going to talk about the message a little bit more, uh, and then we're going to come back at the end of class and spend some time talking about the man. So let's jump right in to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, this is where we left off last time, that, that in the book of Jeremiah he describes the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel in terms of adultery, uh, and he is God's lawyer bringing these charges of denial of the covenant, breaking of the covenant, breaking of the agreement between God and his people to those people. So he is, he is serving papers, if you want to put it in those terms. And so uh, just to kind of warm ourselves up, this is where we were last time. Let's first talk about the, the two charges that were brought against the people. Look there in verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, let's read verse 9 just to remind ourselves, orient ourselves of where we are. 
Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. Against your children's children, I will bring charges. Uh, And they're going to go off into captivity for 70 years. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what were the charges against this people? I'm asking. Okay, they left their faith. They left. The word he uses there is forsake, right? They have forsaken God. And God describes himself in these verses as what? A fountain of living waters. So we think about a spring or a fountain that's descriptive of the blessings that come from God. And God says, I am giving you ongoing, pure and clean Continual blessings. I'm a fountain of living waters. But you've forsaken that. You've forsaken God. And what did they do and said? I heard lots of things. False gods, right? So you've hewn for yourselves cisterns. Um, I was just young enough to avoid this, I guess. But at the farm... Uh, my family farm out in West Texas, there were a couple of cisterns on that place. What's what's a cistern? It catches runoff rainwater, right? And so there are a couple of wells on that place, but there are also a couple of cisterns. Uh, the animals drink out of them. People drink out of them back in the day, right? So you have a cistern, and it catches this runoff water, right? Uh, maybe we think about a you see this in the tropics, right? You see these big drums that they have on the side of houses and the, the rainwater runs into them. That's like a cistern, right? But what kind of cisterns had they hewn for themselves? Broken ones that wouldn't hold water. Well, uh, if we're going to be just totally dead dog honest, if you, if you have a choice in what you want to drink and you've got cistern water and spring water, which one are you wanting to choose? Spring water, obviously, Right? Uh, But what's the issue with the cistern? Uh, It's not going to hold anything. And even what you had, if it actually held something, it wouldn't be as good as what you had before with a fountain of living waters. But but now it's broken where it's not going to hold anything. It's, It's like a false promise. And so the image is the people have this fountain of living waters and blessings from God. They hewn themselves cisterns that are broken and have holes in them that don't hold anything. And they have a choice between these two, and here's the charge I'm bringing against you. You have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and you have gone after other gods, false gods. And not just false gods, but also the nations, uh, in order to fulfill these blessings that would have been provided and are promised to you by God. It is bad enough for us to reject God. It is worse to turn to something else in order to replace Him. Um, And the passing pleasures of sin are never worth it. We know that. While the reward in Christ always is. Uh, And what's interesting to me, if you drop down to verses 33 and 34, this was not something that that was just private. This was not something that just was behind the scenes. This is not something that God had to search for. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you also have taught the wicked women your ways. Also, on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. 
I have not found by secret search, but plainly on all of these things. Um, secret search there is literally the idea of digging, right? And we, and we use that terminology with like private investigators. They're digging, right, to see what they can find. And God says, I didn't have to dig. This was out in the open. You were blatant about this. And so because of that, I'm bringing charges against you. Um, so we have charges what witnesses do we see in this chapter? Now, I, this is kind of a throw-in at the end, so I'm not going to be too hard on you. Uh, but at the end of class last time, I said, hey, just think about these things. Do we see witnesses? So we're going to call witnesses to say, hey, I'm bringing these charges against you, and here are my witnesses to prove that it's true. What witnesses does he call in this chapter? Well, if one of the things they've gone after, somebody raise their hand. Some, one of the things they've gone after are false gods and other nations. Well, he's going to call these false, not the false gods, but the nations in witness against his people. Look there in verses uh, 10 through 12. We skipped over this just a second ago. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and sea. Uh, so which direction was Cyprus? If you're in Israel, if you're in Jerusalem, which direction is Cyprus? Okay, so it's to the northwest, right? Northwest. So, so look beyond Cyprus and see if what I'm about to say is true. Send to Kedar and consider diligently. So Kedar is to the east. That's the Arabian desert. He says, look to your right. Look to your left and see if what I'm telling you is true. And see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? These aren't real gods. But has a nation changed its gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. So the first witness is the nations. The nations are called as witnesses. And what is the question that he asks? Hey, have you ever seen this before that a nation does what? Change their gods. What he's saying there is even the nations are loyal to their false gods. If you grow up in a nation and this is your patron deity, then you're going to be loyal to that deity. It's not right. They ought to come to the one true God, but at least they're loyal. At least they're committed. You have the true and living God, and you can't be committed to me, even in comparison to the nations. Um, in the ancient world, it was virtually unheard of for a nation to change gods of their own free will. If another nation conquered them, then sometimes they would change then. But generally, they remained loyal to the gods passed down to them from previous generations. And Judah couldn't even do that. At least be consistent, God says. But no, Judah wanted to have a foot in each world. Serve God a little bit. Serve Baal a little bit. Hey, a new God comes along. Let's see if we can serve that God too. There is no commitment. There is no loyalty. And everybody hates hypocrisy, right? That's something that everybody can agree on. Nobody likes a hypocrite. And what God is saying, at least be consistent. If Baal is God, reminds us of Elijah, right? If Baal is God, choose him. If the Lord is God, serve him. 
But at least make a choice and be consistent in the choice that you're making. Um, you know, obviously that, that concept applies to people, uh, applies to those who are believers. It's always funny to me when people, uh, one of the reasons why uh, they, they reject Christianity, uh, you've probably heard something like this, there's just too many hypocrites in the church. Has anybody ever heard that excuse? Just too many hypocrites in the church. And my response is always kind of the same. Well, that's great. Go to the world where there are no hypocrites at all. You know, just go to the world. There's no hypocrites there at all. But the point is well taken in this sense. If we have chosen to serve the true and living God, let's be committed about it. And if we're going to go into the world, then go into the world. Own it, as the kids say, right? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And the people of Judah seem like they just didn't want to make the choice. And so he calls the, the nations of the world into witness against them. But that's not all. In verses 14 and 15, we see the second witness. Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared against him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. The second witness against them is their sister Israel. Is Israel a slave, he's asking? Or is that your sister? Is that your sibling? What happened to Israel by this time, by the time of Jeremiah's prophecy? The northern kingdom. What happened? They are long gone into Assyrian captivity, right? And God is saying, look, you had like the perfect example of what not to do right there. Uh, if you have a sibling, especially if you're the older sibling, right? You, you know this dynamic a little bit. There is uh, that, that example of what to do and what not to do. Uh, and I'm an older sibling. Some of us have younger siblings that really learn from that. Others of us have younger siblings who did not learn at all. I won't tell you which one was my younger sibling, right? Uh, but you say, hey, you've already got the example. You know what's going to happen. You know what the consequences to this behavior is or isn't. Haven't you learned anything? And that's what God says here. You, you had Israel. You had this example, and you have learned nothing from the mistake of your sister. Uh, in chapter 3, he actually spends a long time talking about this in, in verse 6. Let's just read a few of those verses. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6. This is a call to repentance. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all her treacherous sister, Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Uh, what's the application to us? Well, there are a couple that I want to make. Number one, why are we studying the book of Jeremiah? Uh, I was talking with somebody in the hall about objectives for classes and the classes we're teaching in the back. Why are we studying the book of Jeremiah? 
Lots of things we could study. Why are we studying Jeremiah? Well, because we have that list of books that we're supposed to study, and we've gotten down to Jeremiah, so it's time to study Jeremiah. For what purpose? Why is this recorded for us? What are we supposed to learn? So that God does not hand us a certificate of divorce. We need to learn from the mistakes of Israel and Judah. Now, they're under a different covenant. And yes, there are a lot of things that were different, but there are so many things that are the same. God is the same. His character is the same. And the temptations of people, both good and bad, those temptations are very much the same. And so we need to learn the lesson of Israel and Judah uh, and not go after other things in replacement for the blessings that only God can give. But let me draw another application, and maybe this is... This is certainly a secondary application, but just allow me a brief aside here. Um, I think there is legitimacy to the idea that we can learn lessons from other churches around us and the issues that we see going on there. And the problems of the denominational world can become our own problems when we follow their path. Um, Many churches are imitating whatever they can of the churches that they see around them. Uh, talk like them, pray like them, preach like them, study like them, worship like them, evangelize like them. And Harold, I don't know if it's original to Harold, but I've stolen it and used it and used it and used it everywhere I go. Harold says, truth belongs to us no matter who has it, right? And so if there is something that is true, I don't, I don't really care who's teaching that truth. I want to accept the truth as truth. But let's make sure, very sure, that something is truth within the confines of what God's Word teaches and allows before we adopt it for ourselves. Um, like you, I have, I have very close friends who are in a number of different uh, denominational churches who talk about, to me, what's going on in their churches. Um, I think some of that is, you know, they feel safe because I'm not a member there, so they can just be kind of honest about what's going on. And, and hopefully, you know, as a friend, they feel comfortable talking to me about those things. And I'm a preacher, so, you know, spiritual things come up. Uh, surely that, that happens in your relationships, too. You know, you're a Christian, you're known as being a Christian, so people talk to you about things. Hey, this is what's going on in, in our group and, and those sorts of things. And it's interesting to me, um, not just in those personal relationships, but, you know, I listen to Christian talk radio, I, I read a wide range of books, I, I follow a number of different people from a, uh, a number of different traditions on social media, and I'm aware of the biases of those people as much as I can be, but what are so many of those people lamenting right now? Let me give you just a taste of some of the things that I've seen. We've lost our young people because we entertained them instead of teaching them God's Word. We've drawn people, large numbers, with free babysitting and giveaways, but it seems like they always stop coming whenever we just try to offer them spiritual things. I never thought, uh, this was actually something that was said to my dad by a close friend of his, I never thought the younger generation would take things as far as they've taken them. We just need to get back to the basics. And this is a recent con con conversation. And my dad's response to him was, well, just, 
Just go back to what the Bible teaches. The issue is that you left what the Bible teaches to say, well, we can do all of these other things. And yeah, somebody's going to take that a step further. If we don't have to have authority for everything that we do, then why do we have to have authority for anything that we do? When we let go of God's word as the standard, there's no telling where that's going to go. Now, I have heard all of those things within a short period of time from people that I know, and I'm sure you've heard similar things as well. And it's a reminder to us of what we know to be true. The spiritual is what's most important, and God's Word is supposed to be our guide in all matters pertaining to life and godliness. And the rest is merely a distraction from God's purpose that is placed there by the devil. And so let us learn from the mistakes of others to not make those same mistakes ourselves. Judah learned nothing from the mistakes of Israel, and they, they ended up paying very much the same price as Israel. Okay, uh, thoughts or comments there? Are you experiencing that same thing? Are you talking with your friends and neighbors about what's going on in their congregations? You know, some things, obviously, they feel are, are very good in those things, but it's interesting to me some of the things that are being lamented. So, how did the people plead when this was brought to them by Jeremiah? How did they plead? We, we lament in dust and ashes. You're right. Guilty. Guilty as charged. Is that how they pled? I'm just going to stand here until somebody says it. No. no, not guilty. How do you plead in a court of law, right? We're not guilty. All these things you're saying, Jeremiah, we have not done. Uh, just notice a couple of places where they say this. Verse 23. How can you say, this is the people's response, how can you say, I am not polluted, I have, gone at, I have not gone after the Baals? Jeremiah says, how can you say that? Well, that's what they were saying, right? We're not polluted. We haven't gone after the Baals. Look, the temple's still there. We're still worshiping uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, drop down to verse uh, 35. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say, I have not sinned. They refuse to acknowledge any wrongdoing on their part. And what's the big problem with that? Well, if we do not acknowledge our sins, salvation cannot be, hand, be found. We must acknowledge the wrong that we're done. And, and merely denying that we've done anything wrong will never fix the problem. The people in Jeremiah 2 had no remorse. Oh, they sorrowed, but they were sorry for their sin in a worldly sense. Look in verse 26. As the thief is ashamed... When? When is the thief ashamed? When he's caught. When he is found out. So is the house of Israel ashamed. You're, you're ashamed because you got caught. Not because you're sorry over the things that you have done. And you see this not just in this chapter, but throughout the rest of the book as well. Um, that's exactly what we read a moment ago in chapter 3 and verse 10. They have not turned to me with their whole heart but in pretense, says the Lord. They made it look good, but their heart was far from me. Um, and so, God is the accuser, the judge, the jury, the sentencer, all of those things. And if we refuse to repent, the verdict will always be the same. 
Um, now, for us, that would represent a conflict of interest. Uh, my dad, uh, my dad got a ticket that he didn't think he deserved four or five years ago in a little bitty tiny town in West Texas. It's one of those towns where you know. You call up the, the city office and there's like one or two employees uh, and the guy is like mayor and dog catcher and all these things as well. So he calls up and the judge that he would have to appear before to get this ticket dismissed, uh, the judge is the one who answers the phone. No secretary or anything. The judge just answers. He's like, oh, well, that's great. This is exactly who I need to talk to. And he says, you know, I want to explain to you what happened. This is what happened. He's like, okay, let me, let me hear what happened. So he explained what happened and he said, you know, I think this needs to be dismissed. He said, I'm not going to dismiss it. He's like, well, okay. Well, then what I want to do, I feel passionate enough about this. Uh, I want to have, have a jury trial. You know, give me a jury trial. He had a friend who had done that, and it actually worked. He said, well, that's what I'm going to do. A jury trial. I'll drive over there if I have to. He's like, well, you can do that. You're not going to win. He's like, no, I, I want to plead my case. He's like, well, you can do that, but you're not going to win. And so finally my dad said, okay, how do I pay this ticket? Right? It's a conflict of interest that this person who's going to benefit off of all of these things is also the one who's going to determine whether somebody's guilty or not. That's the way it is for us, but not with God. God is the perfect judge. He is totally righteous in every aspect. And what is the verdict? They plead not guilty. He finds them guilty. Verses 36 and 37. This is the end of the chapter. Why do you gad about? That's New King James. It's a great phrase. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you are ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. You've gone after false gods and false nations for your protection. They are broken cisterns, and ultimately, they will abandon you on the day of need, and you're going to be found guilty by God. And yet, what's amazing to me, after this chapter of um, judgment, what is it that we read in the very next verse, chapter 3 and verse 1? They say... If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet, return to me, says the Lord. The opportunity of appeal, to use our metaphor, the opportunity of repentance is still there. And repentance is still available today. In fact, that is the very reason we are still here. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's Jeremiah's message in a nutshell. Um, but before we return our attention to the man, I want to share one more thing about his message. And... Um, Turn over to Jeremiah 31, and it's about this hope that Jeremiah offers in the midst of a very dark message to the people. My favorite professor in college, favorite Bible professor, um, 
He considered Jeremiah 31 one of the five most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. So I would be remiss if I didn't spend a little bit of time on this chapter. Jeremiah 31 is the promise of a new covenant that offers real fellowship and real forgiveness of sins. And so this passage is coming at the very low point in the history of God's people. Israel's already in captivity. Judah is told they're going into captivity. And the two defining moments in Jewish history, well, there's three now if you add the Holocaust in modern days, but in ancient Jewish history, what were the, the two big defining moments? Well, maybe I'd say four, destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, before the destruction of Jerusalem. Exodus. The Exodus, absolutely. And the other big one? The Babylonian captivity. And the second Exodus or return from that captivity. Everything that had been their identity as a nation has now been destroyed by chapter 31. All of the promises and prophecies of Jeremiah have come, and, have come to pass. The land, think about the promises to Abraham, right? Land, well, they're no longer in the promised land. Uh, the promises to David of a, of a kingdom, well, the house of David has ended physically. And the practice of their religion, this temple that, that God made for them, well, the temple is destroyed and God has seemingly turned his back on them. And yet, in the midst of this tragedy, there is hope. Let's read verse 31 uh, and following. Jeremiah 31, 31. It's easy to remember. 31, 31. Behold, look, this is important. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. You know how you get all your identity by that exodus and the things that follow? This is going to be different than that, he says. Not like that when I took them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. There's that image of adultery again. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is looking forward to the new covenant that is spiritual in nature. It is written on the heart or inward parts, the mind and will, where the new law is found in God's revealed word and internalized by its followers. Why is it that nobody has to say to his neighbor, know the Lord in this covenant? Well, what does he say? Everybody knows him. Now, that's not talking about the world at large. What is that talking about? The citizens of his kingdom, the church. Those who are added to his church know the Lord. And they are part of this covenant, this covenant that provides real and lasting forgiveness of sins. How do they become part of this covenant? Well, before you answer that, how did somebody become part of the old covenant? By blood. You were born into it. You were born a Jew, you're under the covenant, right? 
Now, there were exceptions to that, proselytes and so forth, but basically, you're born into it. How does somebody become part of this covenant? By the blood of Jesus, you are reborn into it by your choice. You choose to come and become part of this covenant. And so, yes, everybody knows him because everybody made the choice to be reborn and forgiven of their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this covenant fulfills all that have come before it. All right, uh, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the man. Um, I've got another two pages of notes, so I'm going to choose carefully uh, what we talk about with Jeremiah. And then I would just encourage you to, to really read and meditate and think about this man and what he stood for. I've fallen in love with Jeremiah. He's an amazing man to study, uh, to seek to emulate, especially, I suppose, uh, as a preacher. Um, I've, I've really... Uh, identified with Jeremiah in some ways. Uh, there's a book that I'm reading by Eugene Peterson that's, again, um, a great author. Uh, if you've heard of the message paraphrase, he's the guy who did that paraphrase of the entire Bible. Um, he's got some really good writing about a number of things, but but Jeremiah is kind of like his was, he's, he's passed now, but was his spiritual hero. And so I'm reading this book, uh, Run with the Horses, that's about Jeremiah's life. Uh, I would recommend it, but know what you're getting into with this, that it's, uh, it's not really a study of Jeremiah so much as it is reflections about life that are inspired by Jeremiah, I guess. Um, but he says this about Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, it is clear that the excellence of life comes from a life of faith, from being more interested in God than, than in self, and has almost nothing to do with comfort or esteem, or achievement. That's what excellence in life is found. It's not in those things. In Jeremiah, here is a person who lived life to the hilt, but there is not a hint of human pride or worldly success or personal achievement in the story. Jeremiah arouses my passion for a full life. At the same time, he firmly shuts the door against attempts to achieve it, that full life, through self-promotion, self-gratification, or even self-improvement. It is enormously difficult, he suggests, to portray goodness in an attractive way. It is much easier to make a scoundrel interesting. All of us have so much more experience in sin than in goodness that a writer has far more imaginative material to work with in presenting a bad character than a good person. In novels and poems and plays, most of the memorable figures are either villains or victims. Good people, virtuous lives, mostly seem a bit dull. Jeremiah is a stunning exception. And he says, for most of my adult life, he has attracted me. The complexity and intensity of his person caught and kept my attention. The captivating quality in the man is his goodness, his virtue, his excellence. He lived at his best. His was not a hothouse piety, for he lived through the crushing storms of hostility and furies of bitter doubt. There is not a trace of smugness or complacency or naivete in Jeremiah. Every muscle in his body was stretched to the limits by fatigue, every thought in his mind subjected to rejection, every feeling in his heart put through fires of ridicule. Goodness in Jeremiah was not being nice. 
It was something more like prowess. Prowess is that idea of skill, yes, but it's also bravery and honor and conviction. And that's what Jeremiah had, those things and much, much more. We see his deep capacity, his passion and love for Jerusalem and his desire for salvation for those people of Jerusalem. And it reminds me very, very much of Jesus uh, in his journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 13, after he's condemned Jerusalem and says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, uh, in that chapter in verses 34 and 35 of Luke 13, well, let's just read it right quick. Turn fast. This is like the kids in the back when you're in a competition to see who can get there first. Are you there? Are you there? Luke 13, 34. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. God's desire, Jesus' desire, Jeremiah's desire was always for the repentance of the people. It gave him no pleasure to preach, to preach the message of condemnation that he preached. Uh, and it's no wonder when Jesus asked his apostles, who do men say that I am, among the names mentioned is Jeremiah's. And like Jesus, Jeremiah had a great in endurance in righteous suffering. Um, he suffered. Uh, he suffered greatly. In Jeremiah 12, uh, verses 1 through 5, God basically, Jeremiah is complaining about how bad things are because everybody's rejecting his message. And he says, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, but it's about to get a whole lot worse. And it does. And he's thrown into a pit down into the mire and forgotten for a little while. He's dragged into Egypt against his will. But I think all of that maybe sets, sets up well for what is his best quality. Jeremiah is not naive. He believes what God has said. You're going to preach to these people and people are not going to listen to you. And yet it is amazing to me that despite his suffering at the hands of these people, he still loves them and wants them to be saved. And he has this incredible capacity for hope. Hope for himself, hope for the future, hope for a righteous remnant. We're supposed to talk about Lamentations for a few minutes this morning. Lamentations likely was written by Jeremiah. It's anonymous, but there's a long tradition, long Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, going back to at least the Septuagint that Jeremiah was the author. It is maybe the darkest book in the Bible. It's a poem. It's a poem of suffering um, laid out in a really beautiful way. Maybe I'll share with you another time. But right in the middle of all that suffering, five chapters, and it's laid out in a prophetic pyramid. Right at the top of the pyramid is that section from Lamentations that we actually know, that we all know, of God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's hope that is provided to Jeremiah even in the midst of suffering. And so my final admonition as we look at the man of Jeremiah is this. Preach the word, but you cannot stop loving people while you do it. And you cannot stop having hope for the power of that word to change lives. Thank you for your good attention this morning.